Uh, well, when people invent gods and, and religions, uh, they usually invent gods that reward and punish. Uh, gods that reward for good behavior and punish for bad behavior. Uh, in, in most religions, if there's a heaven, it's full of good people. If there's a hell, it's full of bad people. God rewards the good and he punishes the bad. The world's basically made up of the good guys and the bad guys, the, the ones that'll be rewarded and the ones who'll be punished. I mean, you see it even in, in Buddhism where, where people's past actions come back to them in karma and the good are rewarded, the bad are punished. Each year at Christmas time now, we, we gather across the country to be reminded that there is a dark side and a light side of the force. And that one day at the end of this story, the, the good will be rewarded. Whenever Disney has milked the last dime out of that storyline, finally in the end, we know where this is going. The, the good will be rewarded and the bad will be punished. But Christmas says that God is very different than these impersonal, retributive gods. He's very different than just the forces in the world that reward and punish based on works. God is a just God. He is a holy God, but he's also a gift-giving God. And gifts or graces are not earned. They're, they're given to someone because you love them. I mean, tomorrow morning, our kids will not be earning gifts. Uh, we're, we're not going to say, okay, you can pour out your stocking, but first got to go scrub the toilets. And then they come down and get rewarded. And here's the big one. Uh, to open this, you've got to clean the basement. So this afternoon, we'll, we'll open that up. Go, go for it. That, that's not how we give gifts. That's how you give paychecks. That's, that's how you give wages. And gifts are not wages. They're, they're unmerited. They're not worked for. You don't get gifts because you're deserving. You get gifts because you're loved. And you don't give gifts to people because they've worked for them. You give gifts to people because you love them. And in Jesus, we see that God is not just a, a just God paying out what's owed. He's also a gift-giving God. And if, if all he ever did was pay out what was owed, he never would have sent his son because we, we didn't deserve that. The shepherds didn't deserve to, to know what God's plan was. Mary didn't deserve to have the Savior in, in her womb. We didn't deserve to have the Son of God come and give his life for us. We deserve to be abandoned by God. We deserve punishment from God. If we only got what we deserved, we'd be in, in a world of hurt. But God is a gift-giving God. The God who sent his Son to, to be born in Bethlehem, to live a perfect life on our behalf, to teach us his ways, and then the, in the greatest of all possible gifts, to die on Calvary and rise again. And he didn't give us these gifts because we earned them. He didn't give us these gifts because we deserved them or we got moral enough or religious enough. He gave us these gifts because he loves us. 1 John 4, 8 says that God is love. He's not only a God who punishes and rewards, but a God who gives gifts because he is love and because we are loved. And that's what the message of, of all of Scripture is, that God is a God of grace and mercy and loving kindness. That's been the message as we've studied through Romans, that despite our sin, despite the fact that if, if we got what we deserve, we'd be cut off from God forever, he came and loved us. He came and gave to us. And so in Romans chapter 5, we'll start reading in verse 1. It says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. 
For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And it really is easy to doubt God's love. I mean, sometimes in the tragedies of life, or in what seem to be unanswered prayers, or, or even just life's complexities in the daily grind of life, we can doubt whether there's a God who loves us. It's somewhat easy to maintain faith in a God who made us. I think we can, can look at nature, look up into the, a starry night, or look into a microscope and see that there must be a designer, there must be a maker behind all this. It's, it's, okay, we, we can maintain that kind of faith in a God who makes us. Maybe we can maintain faith in a God who will reward us for good and pay us back for our evil. That's kind of the default religion of our hearts. So we can believe in that God. But the God that's easy to lose faith in is the God who loves us. Because we don't always feel his love, or we don't always believe that we're experiencing his love in our lives. But verse 8 says, God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, when our eyes are open, I think we can see all kinds of evidence that he loves us in our circumstances, that he's actively loving us day by day. But the place that we're called to look here to, to know the love of God is the cross of Jesus. And remember, you give gifts because you love. And there are all kinds of gifts that we have from God, but the greatest gift ever given was the gift of God's Son. And that's the greatest evidence there is that God is not just a retributive God who pays us for what we've done, but a God who loves us. And a God who loves us with a love that's far beyond any love that we could ever muster in return. You know, a lot of time we'll, we'll sing songs uh, about how much we love God, and I, I hope those songs are true. I hope there is love for God growing in our hearts. But we sing those songs, and, and they sometimes will have a hollowness to them because we know that we don't really love him like we should. We, we, we wish it was true that we loved him with all of our heart and all of our mind and all of our actions. We wish that we could come into church on a Sunday and say, man, I perfectly love God this week. But we sing out about how much we love him, and sometimes we feel almost like a hypocrite because our love is always so half-hearted. We, we've never really given him everything in, in our love for him. But his love is worth celebrating. And so look at the characteristics of his love in this passage. I mean, the first characteristic of it is that he gives his love to us freely. In verse 6, it says, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. The gift of Christ's death for us was a planned thing. This wasn't something that went wrong in his life. It's not like Jesus was a, a rebel on a mission and his mission went badly and so at the end he lost his life as a result. He actually came and from day one had planned to give his life for us. He, he gave his life to us and gave it to us completely freely. Remember, there were all kinds of people who were trying to wipe him out before his time. There were all kinds of people trying to stop that mission from happening and they were totally powerless to do that. But when it was time for him to give himself for us, he did. Remember from the, the beginning, the shepherds came from the east, and they told King Herod that a new king, a new king of the Jews, had been born. And Herod panicked. Because if you're the king, it's not good news that there is a new king. You know, if you're the manager at work and someone comes in and says there's going to be a new manager, you're saying, well, what does that mean for me? <laughs> That's not good news for me. So Herod pretended that he was going to worship Christ so that he could find him to try to wipe him out. In Matthew 2, verse 7, it says, Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. 
And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. So this child wasn't going to die before his appointed time. He was protected until it was time to give his life. Nobody took his life from him. He laid it down because his love gives freely. When he had finished his work of teaching and and healing and showing, he allowed Judas to betray him. He allowed soldiers to arrest him, and he went to the cross, and he died. It was all planned. It was a free gift that he gave us in Christ. He waited until the time was right. But when we say he waited until the time was right, don't think that that means that he waited until we were ready or until we deserved it. He wasn't waiting for us to become moral enough. He wasn't waiting for us to become good enough. He wasn't waiting for us to get on his side before he would come and give his life. It wasn't wages that he gave us when he gave us his son. He gave us a gift. And that's the next attribute of his love you can see in this passage is that his love gives to the undeserving. He wasn't waiting for people to be worthy of his gift. He wasn't waiting for us to achieve anything. He wasn't waiting for us to understand anything. He wasn't waiting for us to climb up to him. Verse 6 says that he did this while we were still weak. It says again that he died for the ungodly, not for the godly. And it says that he died for us while we were still sinners. God wasn't waiting for us to, to get up to him and then he paid for it by giving his son. This was a pure, unadulterated, unmerited gift that he gave not to his friends, but to his enemies. Look at verse 7 again. He says, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. So he's saying that sometimes a person dies for a righteous person. I mean, this is the kind of person who is moral and upright, but fairly cold and unattractive just kind of like the good, disciplined type of person, the upstanding citizen. If you hear that there's an opportunity to die for someone like that, sometimes someone will die for a righteous person. Even more often, someone will die for someone who's good, and that's someone who has all those righteous attributes, but they're also virtuous and attractive and warm, somebody that you like. You might die for that person. So maybe you'll die for for the cold righteous person. There's a little bit of a better chance that you die for the warm and attractive righteous person. But nobody dies for an enemy. Nobody dies for a wicked person. That would take a whole different kind of love. But verse 8 said, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This wasn't God giving his, his life for noble people to rescue them. 
This was God dying to rescue sinners, to rescue the ungodly, to rescue the weak, to rescue the rebels. I mean, if you think of the person that you have the hardest time loving in your life, that was us times a thousand, and God gave his life for us. So God gives his love to us freely, and God gives his love to us while we're sinners, while we're weak, while we're ungodly, while we're his enemies. It's completely undeserved. He gives his love to the undeserving, and he gives generously. And think of what he gave to give his son. I mean, when you feel, when, when somebody that you know dies, you feel that loss in proportion to how close they were to you. And if you hear the story that, that an old friend from, from high school died, you, you'll feel that. But if it's a, a sibling, or if it's a spouse, or if it's someone in your immediate family, it's devastating. You, you feel that loss far more because of how close they are to you. And here's God in the closest of all possible relationships. First of all, he's got far more capacity than any of us have to love. He has infinite capacity for love. And from eternity past, he's in this perfect relationship, the Trinity, between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, where, where the three are one. And there's perfect harmony. There's perfect delight between Father, Son, and Spirit. There's never a wedge between them. There's never a disagreement between them. It's just this perfect divine dance from all eternity, as close as you could possibly be, as deep as a love could possibly be, as one as you can be with another. And out of that, God gives his son to die. So this is a generous sacrifice. And when there's doubt about God's love. The first place that we look isn't to our circumstances. The first place we look is to the cross. Because God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then when we look to that cross, we know about the love of God that gives to us and we start to experience that love of God as it steals us, as it steals us up for, for the trials and difficulties of life. I mean, we'll go through our lives and, and we'll be tempted sometimes to doubt whether he could still love us because of our sin. We're reminded by the cross that he loved us while we were sinners to begin with. So how could our failures ever put us outside of his love? And God proved in the gospel that he loves us where we are and not where we should be. We didn't come into relationship with God because we deserved his gifts, because we deserved his love, because we had earned anything. And so we'll say to ourselves, but man, after this long, after I've wandered this far, how could God love me? But you were never able to earn his love even on your best day. He loved us while we were ungodly, while we were sinners, while we were weak. Your relapse into ungodliness doesn't keep you away from his love doesn't disqualify you for his love because it never disqualified you from it to begin with. So when we think, man, I've gone so far, how could God ever receive me again? How will he ever hear when I confess my sin again? How could I ever be close to him again? Be reminded that his love gives and it gives to undeserving people. So that means that God is not weary of you. God is not sick of you. He's not exhausted by you. He loves you. So his love on the cross steals us up from when we're tempted to, to doubt whether he could still love us because of our sin. It also helps us when we're tempted to doubt because of how we feel. 
I think there are times we go through lives and we do feel his love. We do kind of feel that sense of his nearness. We feel his peace. We feel his goodness to us. But his love for us is far more than a feeling. It's actually a historical reality. He died for us. History isn't true or not true based on how we feel. I mean, just because you wake up feeling like Abraham Lincoln never existed, that doesn't change reality at all. My feelings don't determine the truth of, of history. My feelings don't determine truth. They're a really bad final judge of reality. But in the dark times when we don't feel God's love, that doesn't tell us a thing about whether he loves us or not. His love is that he, he gave his son to die for us. God shows his love and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He did that. That happened. So whether I feel it or don't feel it, it doesn't change the reality of his love. So don't doubt his love because of your feelings. When you're wondering if he loves you, don't look inside your heart for proof that he loves you. Look to the cross. Because on the cross, he freely and generously gave to you when you were undeserving. Know that he loves you. Know that that's true, even when you can't feel it. So his love strengthens us when we're tempted to, to doubt whether he could receive us again because of our sin. His love strengthens us when, when we're tempted to doubt because of how we feel. And it strengthens us for when we doubt his goodness and his provision going into the future. I know this is the time of year when we kind of look back over the last year and look forward to the next year. And sometimes as we look forward to the next year, there are all kinds of fears that come with it. And we wonder whether we're going to reach the end of God's generosity. Am I going to reach the point where God's patience with me runs out, where God's goodness to me runs out, or where God decides at that point he's going to withdraw his care, he's not going to be caring for me, I'm on my own until heaven, that he's going to back away? Is that what's going to happen in 2018? But he gave us his son. And Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If he gave us his son, this infinitely valuable gift, at an infinite loss to himself, of course he's going to give us every accessory we need to enjoy him fully. He's not going to give us that huge gift and then withhold a small gift from us. He's given us so much, so, so what would he hold back? Why should we ever expect that there would be an end to his love? There's no end to the love of a father who's given his son. And so whatever 2018 holds, whether it's sickness or health, what, we don't know what we're walking into, but we do know that we are not walking into a future without his love. We're not walking into a future without his care. We're not walking into a single moment where he's not by our side caring for us, and we know that because he gave us his son. So his love gives to us. His love steals us up for what faces us, and his love shows us how we love. His love shows us how to take the light of his love to other people. So we look at our relationships. We look at maybe marriage and family and and what we're called to in our marriage and families is to, to love our families for who they are, not for who we want them to be. That we don't love some future perfect version of them. We love them today. And just like God comes and meets me where I am, my love meets my spouse where my spouse is. My love meets my kids where, where my, my kids are. 
We have a God who, who loved even those who weren't perfect, and we were far worse than, than imperfect. And so what we're called to in all of our relationships is not a conditional love, but a love that we give to people who aren't perfect, who don't reach whatever standards we might have in our mind, because we certainly didn't reach God's standards when he decided to love us. Same thing happens in, in church community. We, we're called to love a people who are weak and insufficient and sometimes just goofy. And sometimes we're, we're hesitant where we'll say, I'll be committed and I'll love these people uh, once they get some of those things addressed. That's not how God loves. He loves while we're weak. He loves while we're ungodly and he gives his son. And then as we go throughout the week into all of our circles of influence, whether it's our neighborhoods or campuses or our workplaces, those are places where we get to give ourselves freely. We get to look at the love of Christ and what it means that he loves and he gave, and then we go and lay down our lives for those who are around us. We love like Christ loved us. There was a time where Jesus was at a Jewish leader's house for a feast, and and this is what he taught there. This is in Luke 14, starting in verse 12. It says, He said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So he says that we're called to go out and do good to people who can't do good back. Because we're the ones who have had good done to us that we could never do back. And Jesus Christ has thrown for us this feast of grace and mercy, and he didn't invite the winners. He didn't invite the achievers. He didn't invite the people who are holy on their own. He invited us. And in response to love like that, we open up our homes and our tables and our lives to those around us, especially when they can't give back. But pretty often our our love is only there if it's reciprocated. And we get really quickly wearied with people, quickly exhausted, and we're quick to, to cut people off because they're too difficult. But as people who respond to God's love, we are are called to love people who are wearisome and burdensome and difficult and annoying like us. That's what he's done for us in the gospel, and so we go out and, and spread that same light to others. This is great news and a great gift, what he's given us in Christ. Scripture says God so loved the world that he gave. He gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. I know that there are many of you here today who would say that you haven't yet received that gift. That maybe your whole picture of God was that he's just retributive. He just rewards the good and punishes the bad. And maybe you thought at some point you'll start working hard so you can get to him. At some point you'll be religious. At some point you'll be moral and work your way there. But that's not possible. There is no way that by our efforts we can get ourselves up to the perfect standard of a perfectly holy God. And God is a God who pays out wages, but he's also a God who offers a gift. Now the wages of our sin is death. Because we've all sinned, because we've all fallen short of his glory, we all deserve his judgment. We all deserve hell. But he's a gracious and gift-giving God who sent his son. And if you're willing to admit that you can't work your way there on your own, 
if you're willing to realize that you could never do enough to get to him, if you're willing to turn from your, your sin and your unbelief, if you're willing to turn from all of the things that drove you before, if you're willing to turn from your selfishness, but if you're also willing to turn from all of the attempts you were making to get to God on your own by being good, by going to church, by being religious, if you'll turn from all of that and throw all that in a pile and come with empty hands to Christ, that's how we receive the gift. Not through doing, but through believing in him, through trusting in him. So if you'll turn from that sin, if you'll turn from that unbelief and turn to trust in Christ and trust that Jesus died for you and was buried and rose again, to trust that that is a gift from God, it's not something that you earn or something you do. And if trusting in him, you cry out in in simple faith. Jesus has made the promise that of all those who come to him, he won't lose one. He won't turn you away. He won't reject you. He will receive you. He will forgive you. And he'll turn you from an enemy into his son or daughter. This is the great gift of Christmas. It's the gospel. That God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. And so if you haven't trusted in him, trust today. Believe today. Come to him with empty hands. And he promises to meet you right where you are. Let's pray. Well, Jesus, we thank you for what you've done for us. We thank you that you became a sinless, perfect man to to bear our sins, even our lack of love. We thank you for this love that you've given, that you would live and die in our place. We thank you that when you were on earth, you loved people with a specific and meaningful love. You saw people not for what they could give you, but you saw their needs and their sorrows and their sins. And then you loved us with the greatest love of all. You laid down your life to save us. You loved us when your loving hands were pierced, and your loving eyes were closed in death, when your loving heart stopped beating as you were forsaken by your Father to cancel our debt of sin. And Holy Spirit, we long for Christ's kingdom to come when we will be fully and finally free from from our struggle we have to love. But in the meantime, we pray that you would help us to live as citizens of your kingdom now. Loving others with self-sacrificing love that Jesus perfectly modeled and poured out for us. We pray that you continue to change us into those who love without condition into those who give grace to others in light of the unimaginable grace that we've been given and who look to you as our only source of change and hope and life. We thank you for the grace and the mercy that you've shown us. We thank you that you've taken our sins far from us. We thank you that you didn't expect us to to earn those gifts like their wages, but you gave them like a gift to us. We thank you for your son. We thank you that he came on Christmas We thank you that he died on Calvary. We thank you that he he reigns today and that one day he's returning again. We thank you for your faithfulness to your promises and we long for that day when you return. In the meantime, fix our eyes on you. Let us trust in you, let us love you and love those around us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.